This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day one. Our next presenter joins us from the Philippines. Mark is um, coming online and we'll grab him in a moment. Here he is. Hello, Mark. Mark is... Uh, Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello there. Welcome. Let me, thank you. Um, let me get started. Or should I get started right away? Or do you need to say something? I, I was I just going to introduce you, Mark. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much. And over to you. Oh. Uh, hi, guys. So uh, let me get started. Um, is my screen on? Okay. Let's start this with the story. Um, this photo was taken in 2011. Uh, back then, I was still a fresh graduate, and this was in a convenience store right below a large telco company that I was having my first interview in. Um, <clears throat> this specific convenience store actually had computer terminals uh, where you could actually pay for around Half a, half a dollar, have a US dollar, 20 pesos, 50 pesos, to actually browse the internet for around 30 minutes or so. A man walked in, used one of these terminals to send a message to his friends, and then left. Right after he left, this child walked in. She asked the cashier if she could have a few extra cardboard boxes that they weren't using, probably to sell or most likely to sleep on. She looked at that terminal didn't know ex what to do at all and didn't know exactly what she was doing. Still, she tried and emulated the exact same things that the man came before her did. It's been more than around nine years since I took this photo and I see so much more than what I first originally did when I was a fresh graduate from a top university. In order for you guys to understand what I see now, I need to actually introduce myself and tell you more about me so that you can see what I see. So my name's Mark and I live in Quezon City, Philippines, which is in the greater Manila area. I currently work in the technology industry, which means I am basically, uh, I am basically exposed to and have access to a lot of knowledge and technology that a lot of people don't get to, get to see in their lifetime. I am cisgendered male, which means I can walk into that room filled with people in science and technology and not be told to make them sandwich or make them coffee. I, <clears throat> I hold a college degree, which means I, it's actually quite easy for me and it's actually more, I'm, I'm fairly competitive when it comes to the job market locally. That college degree comes from a top private university in the Philippines. Um, and because I come from that top private university, my family has money. And speaking of that family, my full name is Mark Lester Coscoluela Laxamana. I actually come from post-colonial uh, uh, post Spanish settlers in the Philippines. So what does this all mean? I have certain privileges. Privileges that a lot of people don't get to have things that make it easier for me to actually live through where I am today. They're special advantages that other people don't get to see. While I'm here, I'm going to make it specifically clear that privilege isn't exactly evil. Having privilege isn't exactly evil in itself. 
and you uh, and you are not evil for having privilege. And I say this because we've grown so accustomed to feeling defensive whenever we talk about this, and I need, need to clear that out. Because privilege is not the only thing that actually identifies you, and it's not the only thing that identifies me. While I have all these that, all these that actually make, uh, make up who I am, I am also Southeast Asian, specifically Filipino, which means foreigners, specifically white men, automatically look at me and they see they either see a nurse, a domestic helper, or because, because I am not white, I have to take something called an IELTS to get a work visa abroad. I live with a chronic illness. Specifically, I am HIV positive, and I am not afraid to say that. But because of that chronic illness, I find it hard, and it's actually virtually impossible for me to actually get a work visa in Malaysia, Southeast Asia, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, a little hard in Australia, specifically, New Zealand, etc. Practically almost everywhere in Asia. I am also an atheist, which in, this in the majority Catholic country that I currently reside in, means I am never taken, uh, my thoughts are never taken any value, and I'm never thought of when it comes to anything uh, in terms of policy. Worse, I may be thought of as a spot of Satan. I am proudly homosexual, and according to a boxer turned politician where I come from, that means I'm worse than an animal. And this also means my boyfriend will always just be my boyfriend where I come from. I have certain gender non-conforming traits. I love makeup. I actually used to perform in drag before the pandemic. I am Miss Euthanasia. <laughs> And if it's one thing that I do miss outside of quarantine is being able to buy makeup. What this all means is the mixture of both those privilege and marginalization is what you call intersectionality. There are certain, uh, <clears throat> it is important to understand that privilege, privilege and marginalization can coexist in the same body. You can be both privileged and marginalized at the same time. There are intersections to your identity. It's also important to understand that not all privileges are made the same way and not all oppression is made the same way. Certain privileges can make it easier for you to live through your oppression. For example, I may be gay and I may have a chronic illness, but because my family comes from money it, and I have a college degree, it makes it, and urban centered, uh, I'm urban city centered, it makes it easier for me to actually find a job and I have way more opportunities for me than let's say another gay, homosexual, HIV positive individual from the rural provinces. How does this affect us? I guess in the bigger scope of things, especially in what we have now. In terms of the pandemic, we, we have to realize that we may experience the same pandemic everywhere around the world, but we don't necessarily experience it the same way. For example, my boss who is Romanian, and is currently stuck in Romania, uh, has, her, has his own private residence that is near the woods, and he's able to go out and take a walk without being fined by the police or be scared about Ms. Rona. However, if you are stuck in the urban city, uh, urban city centers renting, your only escape from the quarantine fatigue may be your balcony. Or if you're like me, who had to actually move back home because of, uh, because of the pandemic, you're stuck in a small little attic apartment or room that I grew up with when I was in high school. Uh, 
take note, it actually looks a lot better now than it was way back in March. I've had some time to actually invest in things. Another good example is a lot of us right now are struggling from working from home, but we are also enjoying the fact that we could work from home. Things like working from home with our pets. But if you're like me, you not only have to work with your pets, you actually have to work with pests. Uh, just some side note, I actually have caught more than 10 rats in my house since the start of the pandemic. I deserve a, I deserve a platinum star and, a, and an EXP boost after this. But I shouldn't be complaining because there are certain people in my, in my own city who actually have to catch cats and rats to be able to eat in the middle of this pandemic. See, we all experience things differently. So you might be asking, what is this left, leftist-leaning social justice crap and why is it important to design? Well, I'm here to tell you that yes, yes, it is important to design, Brenda. This is because privilege can lead to a lot of assumptions about the people designed for. Dangerous assumptions considering we experience phenomenon like a, a global pandemic differently. Assumptions that other people are just like us and experiences things exactly the same way as us because we are so anchored into what we experience. This is especially true in the case of technological solutions. It's technological solutions that are mostly created in the West centered around Silicon Valley, created in Silicon Valley. <clears throat> and even when we take a look at technology in, uh, in Asia, where we think of like as the new pioneers of technology, we always tend to look at it in a Western lens. Whenever we think about in innovations when in Asia, we automatically think about Tokyo, Beijing, or Seoul. With, we think of neon highlights, uh, neon, neon highlights, fast speed public transport, and unusual almost sci-fi robotic public transport. And we have a romanticized idea of Asia is all like this. We forget that these three nations are actually just three nations and so many other nations in Asia. That Asia is not China, Asia is not Japan. And, mo and these nations come from imperialistic backgrounds, while the rest of Asia still lives in post-colonial poverty. We have a romanticized idea that every, uh, everything in Asia is this unusual space with magical technology that speak a totally different language. And this is very similar to something I remember from my college when I was studying communication by Edward W. Said, an idea called Orientalism, where we tend to think about Asia as a homogenized uh, region where everything is exactly the same. So let's play a game. A lot of you might think of designing for Asia and moving to certain Southeast Asian countries as expats to be able to actually do some impact. Um, I'm going to ask uh, a poll to be created. Uh, when 90% come in, um, I will close the poll. So let's start. What do you think are the official languages of the Philippines, if you know? So a lot, of, um, a lot of you said English and Tagalog is the top percent with English and Filipino being 38% and Tagalog being 6%, Filipino being 7%. If we go to the next poll, how many languages do you think the Philippines have? And let's stop at around 70%. Okay. So 38% uh, of you or 55 people say that there are around 50 languages in the Philippines. Let me take note that languages are different from dialects, and I am specifically talking about languages. So 
we might be thinking that because it's Asia and it's Southeast Asia, we automatically have to adapt and design for the local languages. In the Philippines, actually, so there are two official languages, Filipino and English. Filipino is a weird term because technically it is actually Tagalog, just created because it is a Manila-centric system. And people in Manila tried to, um, tried to push their agenda towards the, all, all the peripheries of the 7,000 islands of the Philippines. English is also another official language. In fact, every single Filipino who goes to school is actually taught English from an early age. There is no such thing as math in Filipino or, well, very rarely, or science in, uh, in Filipino. And in terms of volume, with some 58 million speakers, English is now actually the most, the most prevalent language in the Philippines. Tagalog, in contrast, is only used by around, around 27 million, people, uh, million Filipinos. So when we think about designing, for that period, uh, designing for those, like let's say if you are working in fintech and you want to design for the financially underserved and the marginalized, you are only, if you end up designing with Tagalog in mind and actually translating your apps completely in Tagalog, you are only designing for this middle area of this highly urbanized center of privileged Philippines. While the marginalized areas are actually here who do not speak a single uh, who do not speak Tagalog and would probably speak English more. In fact, if you are in Cebu, which is one of the capitals in the Visayas region, they would actually they actually have so much hate for the Tagalog language where they would actually prefer to use English than Filipino or Tagalog. And this actually exemplifies a certain thing where imperialism and colonialism happens within our own countries where we actually impose our uh, where a dominant culture actually imposes their own um, ideas around the peripheries the, uh, this leaves people who are already marginalized even more marginalized peripheral or just not thought of at all Another good example is something that we all face in the middle of the pandemic. I have a nephew who is 10 years old, who is dyslexic, and he's been homeschooled since he was seven. And we might think, because the Philippines has a 70.7 internet penetration rate, and we are all trying to struggle to find a way for children to actually go to school, we think that we can actually do online, uh, online learning in terms of the internet in the Philippines. However, and that's why we start creating hackathons for online learning, creating modules, etc. However, if you live in that 30% of the Philippines who don't have internet access, what do you do? You actually have to climb a mountain to send your class requirements to your professor. Much worse, if you're one of the few uh, unfortunate children who has parents who lost their jobs in the middle of the pandemic, you actually don't have access to computers at all. A good example is, is hashtag piece of Paris a laptop or peso for a laptop actually became a trending topic for the last month as the Department of Education here forced people to go into uh, online learning without even giving them any way to actually access online learning. So where does this, this leave them? Where does this leave the poor rural farmer's son who can't go to school? Where does this leave the indigenous person's daughter who lives in the mountains, who has no access? Where does this leave them? Where does this leave us? What, I'm, what we need to realize here is that privilege impacts empathy. 
often, however, we've grown so accustomed to privilege and we've grown so accustomed uh, and comfortable to the privileges we have that we forget to look beyond that. We forget to look, uh, look, look beyond our comforts, comforts like having our own cars in car-centric cities that when lockdowns and quarantines started in the middle of this pandemic, wherever you are, and we shut down public transport, we think and we tell people, you can just simply walk to work forgetting that people actually live more than three or four kilometers away from their jobs or four to three kilometers away from the nearest grocery store, or even worse, our healthcare workers actually use public transport to actually be able to save lives. Or when we actually try to enforce and require people to download tracing apps for coronavirus as a means to be able to get um, necessities when what if you're part of the 30% who don't have access to the internet or digital products? Are you unsafe? Here's the reality is, can you, or the thing that I want to ask, can you truly understand something that you have never experienced? Can you truly understand what it feels like to not have a car, to not have any means of transport, to have to walk everywhere? I will never know what it feels like to be judged by how I dress. I, I will never understand how it feels like to not have food on the table. I will never understand how it feels like to have my ancestral lands taken away from me. And I will never understand how it feels like to not have a way to, me to go home because I can simply call my dad. Just like many of you will never understand the feeling of being, able being afraid to hold someone's hand or being afraid to actually kill them because you love them. Truth be told, empathy has become such a cheap word. As Vivian Castillo said, it's actually bullshit. It's become a cheap word that we use to sell design and apps and conferences so that we can benefit ourselves. We conflate empathy with sympathy. And we forget that sympathy actually comes with a lot of power imbalance, that somebody else has more power than you. And that power imbalance is something that we actually need to fix. We think, you know, a good example of this is when we when we have conferences in Asia talking about designing for Asia, talking about that new frontier, designing in Asia and designing for Asia, yet none of the speakers are actually Asians. Or when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, when we create um, graphics and we actually create challenges for it, sure, we may be able to sell and actually give the funds off to anyone in the Black Lives Matter movement, but in the end, who benefits from it? another privileged white designer who ends up, uh, who ends up with more, most of the brownie points rather than the, an actual black designer who kind of needs this movement more than they, they do. So you may be asking, how do we truly design for the marginalized, for the people outside that Western sphere, the people in the periphery who have so long been just not thought of outside of our Western lenses? And oddly enough, when I first gave this talk more than six months ago, I actually felt so conv uh, convinced and actually like um, conv uh, convicted with my, uh, with my own thoughts about this. But to tell you the truth, I still don't have that re a real answer today, six months after with Black Lives Matter and the COVID crisis blooming. But maybe, just maybe, because I am a huge fan and it's something that she said, Maybe it's time we replace empathy with trust. 
trust that people, people in those countries, people in where you are planning to work for actually know their own areas, know their own suffering, know their, own, know their own problems, that they can actually find their own solutions if you actually help them with it. This <clears throat> trust that they can be part of our uh, conversations, that they can be in the, uh, there when we actually create solutions. This is not this easier said than done, especially when we automatically assume that the less privileged are uneducated, helpless, or stupid. We, autom uh, we automatically think that they don't have the same caliber of design as we do, or we automatically think that they don't have the same technolo technological skills as other people do. But that's something that we actually need to start thinking hard about. It is messianic to, th to tell the truth, but we need to stop that messianic idea that we, whether as, whether as designers, developers, white, educated, male, or straight, are the only ones who can solve problems. Because the last time that somebody felt that messianic, these things happened. Imperialism, slavery, colonialism. And you may think that this doesn't exist nowadays, and when we automatically think about slavery, we automatically think about the U.S. or colonialism. We automatically think about um, uh, about Mexico, etc. But we forget that Asia actually comes from this uh, no, from deeply rooted post-colonial backgrounds, and it still exists today. Seven thousand miles from Silicon Valley in downtown Manila, teams of content moderators actually ensure that you have a safe newsfeed for Facebook all to the detriment of their mental health. Most of, your, uh, most of your apps, the people who you talk to when you call your banks, are all in sweatshops in Manila. And it's not that we aren't designers or we aren't technology or we do not have the voice of technology with us. It's not that we do not understand technology or that we, there are designers who are Filipinos. We are here. But the question is, are you actually able to hear us or see us? or actually able to think that we are here? Are you designing for them? Or when you design for them, are you designing so that they can have a better life or that we can have a better life? Or are you designing so that you can feel better about giving them a better life? Maybe it's time we stop designing for people and maybe it's time we start the designing with people. Unless of course, these people who sit in front of, the uh, of their computers all day while well, they probably have chickens or children running around um, in their backgrounds trying to figure out your bank codes. Unless, of course, you think that they aren't people, that the people who are people are the only people who look and think I, like you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That was wonderful. Thank you. We have, we have time for uh, a few questions. Um, I'm just looking at the Q&A panel. So if you do have some, uh, jot them down. I'm curious, Mark, do you have uh, suggestions for people when um, thinking about who they should reach with um, their research or to test their design, like to design with people instead of for people? Um, so how do you identify those groups? So um, 
quite recently, so I currently work at a salary loan company, and it feels very capitalistic, I know. Um, but yeah, um, but it's something that's definitely needed right now. And um, thinking about that question in itself, and like the people we need to think of, so many of the Philippines, or at least in, mar in urbanized centers, rely on the BPO cent uh, sectors. We think that they may be giving us so much money, but we forget to actually talk to them like real people. And the thing is, they're not, they're not quite hard to find. Like more than 50, I'm just get, grabbing numbers out of nowhere right this, but a huge chunk of our educated youth end up working in the BPO center because it's good, easy money, and we could easily actually talk to them. I actually live less than 15 minutes away from the nearest BPO center, and I could actually take a bike there. It's easy to just sit down in a convenience store and talk to them. Or a good example, and I, I actually realized this quite late, nine years after, that I actually took a poverty porn picture of a child. Just sitting in a convenience store in a, in a mall, you will see like a poor child actually come in asking for alms. It's quite easy to actually ask them, give them some food, and ask them, ask them, hey, how can I help you better? There's so many ways. Or a good example, there is, there is this famous tattoo artist in the Philippines, Apo Wang Od. She is an indigenous, uh, she's the last remaining indigenous traditional tattoo artist living in the Kalinga region. People flock to her to actually, and foreigners flock to her to get their tattoos uh, made. But we never actually ask her in her 95 years old year old body what does she need. We don't. We actually and we actually want to bring her down from Kalinga Province, from the mountains, just to talk to her. Why can't we actually spend time as privileged people with cars and money to actually go there and and see for ourselves what do they need? Maybe she just needs like an, a couple of extra chickens so that she can sell a little sell a bit more eggs, or a couple of sacks of rice so that she can make it things to do. It's as simple as that, and it's not a matter of giving handouts. It's actually a matter of being human to them, actually. It's not quite so hard, if you think about it. Mark, uh, Tatiana has asked a question. She, she's asked, what are some of the worst examples you've seen of Western or Amerocentric designers causing harm for Southeast Asian markets? So, um, biggest thing that I've seen so far um, a good example is like what I actually gave in my talk in the Philippines. It's automatically assumed when uh, Westerners come to the Philippines, they automatically assume that Filipinos can't speak or read in English. And it's weird because one of our biggest exports probably in terms of a brand is Jollibee. Everybody has heard of the Filipino uh, fast food chain Jollibee who beats McDonald's. And they forget to actually critically think, why is Jollibee completely written in English? yet it's still very culturally Filipino. So they automatically think you need to, to actually translate everything into Filipino or Tagalog. That ends up causing more harm than good because for one, yes, we may, because we are completely bilingual, I am actually trilingual because um, I speak another language, another Filipino language, Hilagaynon. Uh, we are completely bilingual, so we tend to switch from English to Tagalog to another language quite easily. We automatically conflate that with spoken language, with written or read language. We forget that while well, Filipino is an amazing language when it comes to um, art and literature and speaking, it's actually hard to read. 
I can I cannot actually figure out the spelling of certain um, words like specific words like karimari marim, which is basically it basically means something that is scary. Karimari marim can be actually spelled in multiple different ways, and it's still using the Roman alpha, the Roman alphabet. Right. We have a, a, another question uh, that's been sent through anonymously. So it, it reads, hi, Mark. I also have a chronic illness, but have felt hesitant over the years to share it and own it. I've felt discriminated because of it. What was the turning point for you? Do you have any advice? Um, I have to, I have to, like, actually put some, what they call this, I have to preface this with the fact that I, I am very privileged. I have lots of privilege, actually, what they call this, um, protecting me from discrimination. Um, my mother actually works for the World Health Organization. That in itself is actually very privileged, the fact that my mother works for that. So I didn't have the problem of like being able to talk to my mom about it. Um, but the biggest turning point was actually knowing my country, uh, knowing the laws against discrimination on certain chronic illnesses that in itself is a that that in itself is a privilege something that i realized not a lot of my countrymen or other people know their labor laws that you can't be discriminated against because of your chronic illness and you probably would be safer if you actually disclose it to let's say hr if your hr actually knew their labor labor law and you knew your labor law so that was my turning point at the very least at the same time i've had a lot of friends who supported me. Um, a lot of people who've paved the way. Um, one of my, one of the, yeah. So uh, like think people, people who've paved the way, who've made it feel better for me, or who made me feel like I could do things a lot better. People like um, Freddie Mercury, for one. I am a huge fan. Even though he died, he did die from an HIV. He still live. Uh, no, he was still very much a rock star in my eyes. So things like that actually helped me out. Right. We have another question uh, from Nigel, this one. What is your opinion on the language modifications code? Changing terms like master and slave. Is this empathy or sympathy? So this is something that I actually saw like um, happen right before my eyes. Um, mostly thanks to people like Jinan and Tatiana actually talking about it on Twitter. And it, it's weird because like it, it never occurred to me. And that's because like... Um, colonialism and imperialism and um, this um, systems of power and imbalance actually are so ingrained that it never was it's something that never re really it never really bothered me until I saw it um, being talked about I do think that there is a problem when it comes when we use this language because it normalizes the idea that there is a master and a slave that there is someone who actually need deserves more and that you deserve less that we that there is someone who is less human and someone who is more human or in this case some something that actually deserves more than the other rather than even if it is simply something like tech um it still coins from that colonial background and uh, enslaved background of master and slave and i do believe it's something that we should actually fix um, I've actually, like the first time I saw it, I actually went and went back to a lot of my um, local code and actually changed a lot of the master and slave to like main and 
um, subcategories, etc., or like uh, create what they call this temporary, temporary A, B, C, or etc. That's great. Uh, we have another question uh, for you that's been sent through. How how do we make sure we can respectfully approach and work with people we want to design with? So, uh, and this is um, this is something I actually, I actually. Even I actually have a problem with because I do come from so much privilege. I understand that I grew up rich, um, and I have a house. Which I have a house. I have a family who actually uh, come from um, col uh, col uh, colonial money. But um, one thing that I think we have to realize is when we approach, like let's say, communities like this. We have to approach them in such a way that we are not talking over them, that we are not, we don't, that we know more, th more than they do. But we actually start with asking questions about and not assuming that it should be better or it should be worse. Things like asking um, a good example. So a lot of the jeepney drivers, jeepney being such an iconic Filipino vehicle for public transport, a lot of the jeepney drivers lost their jobs in this pandemic. Many of them are actually begging for food outside my gated, um, my gated area. Um, it's easy for us to think, hey, maybe we can just give them uh, newer electronic jeep jeepneys where they can social distance. But that's not what they need now. They're they have families who actually need something to eat. They have rent that needs to be paid. Maybe a good thing to actually ask is, kamusta, uh, sorry, I went into, uh, into Tagalog or Filipino. Maybe it's a good thing to ask, hi, how, how is life so far? What have, uh, what have you been having uh, trouble with? Is there something that we can do to help? What do you need right now? Maybe it's a good th place to start is asking them what, they, what do they need rather than asking, maybe this can help you, or can we do this? It's, and it's weird, these are a lot of simple UX things of UX ideas about leading questions that we tend to forget when we start talking to impoverished or marginalized regions. It's, a, it's an easy trap to fall into um, to assume that we've correctly identified somebody who needs help. Yeah, there's also that aspect. Um, I just remembered my philosophy teacher in college automatically um, always actually corrected us whenever we talked about um, impoverished individuals, where whenever we automatically offer, someone's help, uh, offer someone help without them asking for it, we already make an assumption that they are helpless and that they do not need, uh, that they are less than us. Instead of asking, is there any way, uh, what do you need right now? And we automatically assume, hey, here's $100 without them asking for it. That automatically assumes so much already about who they are. Maybe they don't want your, uh, maybe they don't want your money. Maybe what they do want is food right now, or maybe what they do need is a job tomorrow. Right. Thank you, Mark.